been a tumultuous year. In fact, it's been a tumultuous couple decades now. The U.S. has experienced rolling economic shocks brought on by recession, a major terror attack, a financial crisis, and now COVID-19. Our relationship with the rest of the globe has changed dramatically too, with vastly higher levels of trade with China and other countries. We've largely completed a transition from an economy driven by manufacturing to one focused on information and services. That's a lot of change in a relatively short period of time, and it's left the country unsettled and anxious about the future. When we pull back and look at the big picture and focus just on the numbers, work, wages, wealth, what do they tell us about how our country is doing? My guest today is Michael Strain, AEI's Director of Economic Policy Studies. He recently published a short, highly informative book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, in which he lays out a more hopeful and optimistic case for the strength of American economic performance over the past several decades. What the numbers he's assembled and analyzed tell us about income, intergenerational economic mobility, and opportunity tells us that things may not be as bad as we thought. In fact, they may be quite a bit better than we've been told to expect. Michael Strain, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me on. I was just reflecting before we started here. I've been at AEI for not quite two years, and we've done some things together. But I, I also realize that I don't know very much about you, and I'm really I'm a curious. Mistress. Yeah, well, <laughs> so I've heard. So I thought it'd be helpful, you know, for both my edification and for the people on the, listening to this podcast, if you just kind of told us a little bit about your background, your career path, how did you decide that economics was your future? Well, I took an economics course in college by accident. What do you mean by accident? <laughs> I wasn't planning on studying economics in, in, in college. And I took a course because a, a friend of mine was taking, was taking one and he was nervous about doing well in it. And I had a free elective that semester. And I thought, what the, what the heck? Might not be crazy to be able to know something about that subject. And, you know, I found that it, you know, even that one-on-one class was able to offer explanations for what I saw happening in the world in a way that was unparalleled. Even in the first week of class, we were talking about issues and it was, you know, like, like somebody kicked open a door in my mind that had been closed. So I, you know, continued to, to study that subject. And, you know, as I progressed, it just became clear to me that, for me at least, economics offered a way to both understand the world and, 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 and more specifically to understand public policy, but also a way to influence those things. What were you planning to study before you got interested in economics? I was a history and philosophy major. I mean, I graduated with a, with a history degree. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that, but if I hadn't taken that, that first economics class, there's a, there's a decent chance that I'd be working at a law firm right now, would be, would be my guess. Mm, you would have been an attorney instead. And when you think back, so it was just that engagement with that class. Was there anybody who ever, like one of your teachers or family member or somebody said to you, you, know, you should really think about economics? Or did you just literally stumble into this? I literally stumbled into it. And here we are all these years later, and now you're running economic studies at AEI. That's, that's great. So you've written a book called The American Dream. I'd like you to talk about, you know, what sort of led you into writing this? I mean, obviously, it's a key part of your work and your day-to-day kind of life assignment. But 
why did you decide that right now to write this book? Well, I have been for for several years very troubled by the rise of populism on both the political right and the political left. And I'm troubled for it for for a variety of reasons. I'm a you know free market limited government kind of guy and populism on the right, you know, in, in many instances really stands opposed to free markets. It's embrace of protectionism, for example. Populism on the left really stands opposed to limited government. It's embrace of you know, Medicare for all and, and that sort of thing. And so that was troubling. But, but really, more than, more than that, the populist narrative that the elites are the enemies of the people, that the elites have rigged the game, have rigged American life, have rigged economic life against the people, that hard work doesn't pay off, that people are victims, I think is analytically incorrect. You know, I think when you, when you look at the evidence, you don't see decades of stagnation. You don't see hard work not paying off. You don't see a lack of upward mobility. You don't see people lacking agency. But I also think that it's, it's a deeply corrosive narrative because I think it can create the very problem it incorrectly suggests exists. If you tell everybody that, that hard work doesn't pay off, people are going to work less hard. And if you tell everybody that they can't get ahead, people are going to aspire to less and they're going to actually get further ahead as a consequence of that. And, and the fact that you, he, you were hearing this narrative from President Trump, you were hearing this narrative from Senator Marco Rubio, from Senator Josh Hawley, but you were also hearing it from Senator Bernie Sanders. You were also hearing it from Senator Elizabeth Warren. And outside of politics, you were, you're hearing this narrative from economists and public intellectuals and business leaders. You know, the, the public debate was just, has just been saturated by this idea that ordinary people can't get ahead and that the game is rigged against them and that there's just something fundamentally and deeply broken in American society and in our economic life. You know, I really, really thought that that needed a corrective. That's the main motivation that got me to, to write this book. So 80,000 votes across three states that flipped in a presidential election kind of turned the switch on in our politics. In yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's been some very good research. And if you look over the last 150 years or so, and you look at advanced economies that are democracies, you see a pretty consistent pattern, which is that when there is a financial crisis followed by a recession, the recession is typically more severe. You see a big increase in support for populism. And in parliamentary democracies, that is manifest in, in, in just a greater share of seats in the legislature uh, being held by populists. And that has some staying power. You know, on average, it takes a decade or so for, for that populist sentiment to, to subside. And that's exactly what we, we saw in the United States as well. You know, we, we had a severe financial crisis in 2008 that was followed by a deep recession and a slow recovery. And it's no surprise that that's when you started to see the Occupy Wall Street movement. It's no surprise that that's when you started to see 
a guy like Donald Trump being able to be successful and win the Republican Party's nomination. You know, I think that populism was starting to peter out in the United States. You know, Joe Biden was nominated by the Democrats. He's not a populist. The Democrats could have nominated Bernie Sanders, could have nominated Elizabeth Warren. So the United States was following this kind of standard pattern that exists in the historical record. But then, of course, we had the, the pandemic that put the economy back into a severe recession. We'll see. We'll see whether or not you know, that, that kind of pours some gasoline on the populist fire. But yes, I think, I think 80,000 votes in, in three states certainly exacerbated the rise of populism in the United States. But I think that populism was ascended regardless. So at the beginning of your book, you talk about this definitional issue of the American dream. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, the title of the book, The American Dream is Not Dead. And so naturally, the first question is, what is the American dream? And I think the American dream means different things to different people. It's meant different things at different points in, in, in U.S. history. You know, I think any definition of the American dream includes an economic element organized around some kind of basic questions. Are my kids going to be better off than me? Am I able to advance my own outcomes? You know, can I earn more money next year than I earned this year? Can I build my career? Does hard work pay off? You know, can a poor kid grow up to become a billionaire? These sorts of questions about upward mobility, intergenerational mobility, advancement, and, and I think the kind of f- a fundamental moral property of capitalism, which is that people get what they deserve. And that, and that if you work hard, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be rewarded. And then if you work harder, you'll get, you'll get more. You know, I, I, think, I think that is a central component of basically any definition of the, of the American dream. And, and, and that's also the part of the American dream that I'm most qualified to, to write about. And so that's what I, that's what I focused on in, in the book. So you break this down into, I counted five, there might be, might be six, but at least five of kind of key arguments around sort of central kind of statistical analysis of these ideas around mobility and opportunity in American life. Can you just take us through, you've got income growth, you've got quality of life issues, and you've got several other categories, but just kind of walk us through the analysis that you use to demonstrate that the American dream is not dead and is, in fact, in your telling, quite alive. Sure. So I, you know, I wanted to, you know, kind of tackle some of the big questions that people that people are asking. And so there's you know, a lot of a lot of discussion is capitalism broken? You know, does capitalism only work for people at the top? I wanted to I wanted to look at how the benefits of the economic expansion that that we were in prior to the onset of the pandemic this spring were were being shared and and and, and by many important measures lower income households lower wage workers were actually benefiting more from the later years of the expansion than than workers and households in the middle or at the top you know this is not a new thing. Low-wage workers, lower-income households are more influenced by the business cycle than households and workers in the middle and at the top. That cuts in both directions. Right now, the economy is in a, is in a, a sharp downturn, 
And the workers and households that are suffering the most are those at the bottom. But as the recovery continues and as the economy gets hotter and hotter, the opposite will happen. Because households and workers at the bottom are more sensitive to the business cycle, that also means that when the economy is, is really going gangbusters, that they are that they are benefiting relatively more. And so, so what does that mean? You know, I, I, I point to some, some you know, basic measures in the book. The labor market for workers who never graduated high school was tighter than the labor market for college graduates. The 10th percentile of weekly earnings was growing faster than the median or than the 90th percentile of weekly earnings were growing. So what you're saying there is that wages are growing faster at the bottom than at the top. They're they're smaller still, of course, because they're at the bottom, but they're growing faster. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And 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 the benefits from from the recovery were reaching vulnerable workers as well. You saw sharp increases in the employment rate for workers with disabilities. You saw lots of anecdotes that employers were much more willing to hire ex-felons than they had been. So that's one of the that's one of the five things that I that I look at. So we look not just at income, but then you also look at what you talk about in terms of quality of life issues, in terms of looking at whether American life, the economy opportunity is really stagnant. What what did you conclude there? Yeah, so I wanted to I wanted to address two kind of big issues. You know, so we had talked about about how business cycles affect different groups of workers. But but you also hear this claim that that incomes and wages and standard of living have been have been stagnant for decades. Josh Hawley says that that 70% of workers haven't had a raise in three decades. Bernie Sanders says that that workers you know work longer hours for less pay. And so I think that's just not not an accurate reading of the of the data. And I look at wages. I find that over the last three decades, wages have grown by about a third for typical workers. You know, when you when you kick managers out of that, out of the sample and focus on on the 80% of the workforce that 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 are not that are not managers but that are but that are regular workers, you see wage growth of about a third over the last three decades. I don't think that counts as stagnant. I mean, it's less than the top one percent, but it, but 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 it's a significant increase in in purchasing power. Is that a third up by a third? Is, and that's adjusted for inflation. That's real growth in wages. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Wages for workers were rising all throughout the wage distribution. So this is not, you know, this is not just you know some some trick with averages. If you if you look. At the median among that group, you see significant increases. If you look at the tenth percentile, the the worker who earns more than ten percent, less than ninety percent, you see wages have gone up by about a third as well. If you look at the twentieth percentile, that's also about a third. I wanted to look at, at at income, which is a better measure of the actual resources that households have to spend because it includes things like government transfer payments. And there you see 44% increase in, in, in inflation-adjusted income over that time period. For households in the bottom 20%, you see a 66% increase. Again, these are, this is less growth than you see in the top 1%, but it is, it is far from, from stagnant. I mean, 
typical households, low-income households, typical workers, low-wage workers have seen significant increases in, 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 in the purchasing power that they get in, in terms of their wages and incomes over the last several decades. So the populist argument has found resonance in American society. And you talked about, you know, this is what happens after these financial crises. But those are huge increases. Do they, is it just that they accrue slowly and so people don't notice or feel you know, over a three-decade period, you just don't notice that you're getting richer? Is that why, why it enables people to not feel as rich as you're saying that they're getting? So in the book, I, in the book I try to tackle this, and I look at inequality. And you know, there's actually a funny finding that I have, which is that during times when uh, measured income inequality is rising, people actually think inequality is falling. And the reason I think behind that is that people actually are thinking about how they are doing. And when you see inequality going up, that's because wages at the top are outpacing wages at the bottom. But inequality really shot up in the 1990s when wages were going up for everybody. And so wages are going up in the 90s for typical workers. They're going up faster in the 90s for people at the very top. That means inequality is rising. And yet concern about inequality falls because when people think about inequality, they're really thinking about how they are doing. At the same time, you saw an explosion of concern about inequality in the 10-year period following the 2008 financial crisis. You saw the Occupy Wall Street movement. President Obama says that inequality is the defining issue of our time. Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, starts opening the door to the Fed being concerned about, about inequality. Inequality, as measured by the Congressional Budget Office, was actually stagnant or declining following the financial crisis. Inequality increased by one measure that the, that the Congressional Budget Office uses, inequality increased by 27% from 1979 until 2007. And then inequality fell by 7% from 2008 to 2016, the, the, the most recent year available at the time. And again, I think you have this same dynamic. Why are people so worried about inequality at a time inequality is falling? Because what they're actually, what they're actually responding to is, is their own circumstance, which, which, was, which was pretty bad in, in 08, 09, 2010, 2011. And so I think, I think this is a, you know, a kind of more plausible explanation for why these sorts of messages tend to take hold. So inequality, the concern over inequality is a proxy for economic anxiety writ large. That's what we attach that feeling to is that we're worried about our own futures and therefore we're, we call it a concern about inequality. Okay, so then you then you in your book you go on to talk about the old and new middles, which I thought was really from a you know somebody who works on workforce development and thinks about skills and has spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about the skill gap and the hollowing out of middle wage occupations. I was really intrigued with that. Can you talk about the old old what was the old middle and what's the new middle? You know, there's this there's this kind of pervasive concern that the kind of middle of the labor market, you know, middle class jobs, middle class 
jobs that allow people to have a middle class life have vanished. And this is a, a, a concern that animates President Trump. It's a concern that animates many populist Democrats, but it's a concern that extends well beyond populism. It's a concern that, that many people who are not who are not populist have as well. And it's a it's a concern that's 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 very well grounded in in reality. I mean, if you go back to 1970 and you you know take every occupation in the economy and you and you try and assign it to you know one of three categories, you know, low wage, middle wage, and high wage, what you see is you know pretty pretty even split. You know, somewhere around one third of all occupations were in the low wage category, around one third were in the middle wage, around one third were in the high wage category. And then if you if you if you fast forward 40 or 50 years, what you see is that the share of occupations, the share of employment that exists in in the middle has fallen dramatically. And populists attribute most of that to international trade and globalization. That's not correct. Most of most of that has been driven by technological automation. And it just so happens that robots and, and software are able to replace workers in the middle of the labor market more effectively than at the top or the bottom. If you you know think about the kinds of jobs that software has made redundant, you're thinking about bookkeepers, you're thinking about personal assistants, you're thinking about clerks. You know, these are these are the things that Microsoft Outlook and voicemail and ATM machines and those types of advances have 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 been able to to replace in terms of robotics, you know, a lot of manufacturing production jobs can be can be done by robots. All of these jobs required some level of skill. And they were not low-skilled jobs. What they have in common is that they they require a worker to do the same set of tasks over and over again with great precision and great accuracy. That's what you need to do if you're working on a manufacturing assembly line. That's what you need to do if you're a bookkeeper. That's what you need to do if you're organizing somebody's calendar. And what 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 do computers do? Computers execute a set of steps over and over again precisely. And so those workers were particularly susceptible to being replaced by technology, whereas low-wage workers you know, like custodians, for example, are not at nearly as much risk over the last several decades of being replaced by technology. And workers at the top of the labor market actually are, are more productive when technology advances. They can, they can use technology to make themselves more productive. And so, and so this has happened, and it has been one of the most profound and significant changes in the U.S. economy in the history of the, of the nation. Of course, it's been an international phenomenon. It's affected all economies, and it has been one of the most significant changes to U.S. society. It's had important social ramifications. It's been disruptive, and it's been traumatic in, in, in many ways. And so, you know, it is an example of creative destruction. The public debate focuses on the destruction component of, of creative destruction, doesn't focus on the creative component. And so President Trump and populists on, on both the left and the right want to 
retreat from globalization, retreat from free trade, you know, blame trade for doing this to America and blame elites for encouraging free trade and doing this to America. This is a key in the populist narrative. This is a key way that that the elites have rigged the system against against workers is by enriching themselves through globalization, knowing what it would do to, to workers. Of course, that narrative is completely analytically incorrect. This is a driving force behind the agenda behind more more redistribution. You know, the idea that these sorts of jobs are just gone and therefore we need a universal basic income and therefore we need Medicare for all and therefore we need all this other stuff. But of course, you know, because it is a creative destructive process, there is a creative element to it as well. And so in the book, I want to take a, a closer look at the middle of the labor market. And I you know do something pretty straightforward. I just look at all the occupations in the United States focus on the middle third of all occupations by pay. So these are the middle wage occupations. And I look to see what are the dynamics among that, among that middle third. And I separate occupations into, into what I call an old middle and a new middle. Old middle is traditional middle-class jobs. These are the jobs that occupy so much space in our political discourse. These are manufacturing workers. These are construction workers. These are these are clerks, you know, payroll clerks, timekeeping cl- clerks, assemblers, metal fabricators, machine setters, these sorts of jobs. And then I call jobs in the middle that aren't those traditional middle class jobs, the new middle. And here, you know, you can think of transportation workers, education and training workers, personal care and service workers, healthcare support workers, these sorts, these sorts of workers. And I look over the last 20 years, and, and, and sure enough, you see a significant decline in old middle jobs, but you also see a really significant increase in, in new middle jobs. And so what's happening in the middle of the labor market is a story of change, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's a story of some opportunities decreasing and new opportunities presenting themselves. And so you see significant growth in the middle of the labor market. For sales reps, for truck drivers, for personal service worker managers, for heating and air conditioning mechanics, for computer support specialists, for a whole bunch of things. And these jobs are a little different. You know, they they require probably a little more skills than than traditional middle class jobs. They require a different kind of skills. They require situational adaptability. They require social intelligence, interpersonal skills, these sorts of skills. But the point is that there are growing opportunities in the middle of the labor market. There are growing opportunities for workers who didn't go to college to get a job that can give them a middle-class life. They just need to take those opportunities, and public policy needs to, needs to support them in doing so. But this notion that it's impossible now to lead a middle-class life Unless you unless you get a four year college degree, I think it's just it's just belied by the facts, and I think we're doing real damage to people's lives by telling people that there are no more opportunities for for middle class jobs. You also have a really interesting discussion on mobility issues, absolute and relative mobility, you know, over time for Americans, which is also, I think, at odds with kind of the popular narrative about mobility. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. 
I want to look and see whether or not America is, you know, broadly characterized as an upwardly mobile society. And I try and get at this in a, in a number of ways in the book, but the most straightforward thing I do is I take people, you know, roughly present day who are in their forties and I figure out how much money they earn. And then I track down their parents and I figure out how much money their parents earned when their parents were in their forties. And I compare the two to see, you know, after adjusting for inflation and that sort of stuff, I compare the two just to see if people are doing better than their parents did. What I find is that about three quarters of people are doing better than their parents did at comparable ages. Among people who were raised in the bottom 20%, 86% are doing better than their parents did. And among people who were raised in the working class, about three quarters are doing better than their parents did. And by quite a bit, for people who were raised in the, in the bottom 20%, their income was about 2.5 times as large as their parents' income was. Again, actually adjusting for inflation and, and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I conclude from this that America really is still characterized by, you know, quite a bit of upward mobility. So you get to the end of the book and you do something which I would like to see more people do in their books, especially when they're talking about public policy issues. And that's that you turn your book over to two people who disagree with you and you ask them to make the best, essentially to make the best argument they can against what, what you've written. So in this case, you chose E.J. Dion, the Washington Post columnist, who's sort of the avatar of the, the left perspective, and Henry Olson, who is you know, formerly with AEI, is now at Ethics and Public Policy, but has been a leading voice on sort of conservative populism. So you don't have to do this in great depth, but just summarize their arguments against your position so that people can have the experience of doing what you did in the book and in your writing, which is taking other people's arguments seriously. I think both Henry and EJ argue from a position that I think is, is, is fundamentally mistaken and that I actively try to work against in, in the book. America has real problems and America has serious problems. America has social problems for sure. The opioid epidemic is a real problem, for example. America has serious economic problems. If you are a a male worker in your 50s or 40s and you never graduated from high school, you are in for a bad experience. There are some towns in America, some 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 towns that are that, that really have been left behind. Not, you know, mostly by technological advances, but, but to some degree by globalization as well. You know, I think that we spend a lot of time focusing on those problems. And we should, because they require solutions. But I think that we confuse those pockets of problems for the broader picture. And I think we confuse those problems for the broader narrative that characterizes what most people can expect from their economic life and from their lives as Americans. You know, what I, what I try to do in this book is I try to focus on the common experience, on what typical people in the most common circumstances can, can, can come to expect. I don't, want, I don't want to ignore these problems. 
I have a whole chapter in the book discussing these problems. And I include, you know, all these groups in, in, in all the calculations. So, you know, men who didn't graduate high school are in all my calculations for wages and incomes and, and upward mobility and, and, and things of that nature. But I don't think it's accurate to point to our biggest problems and then conclude that the existence of these problems suggests that America is not upwardly mobile or suggests that hard work doesn't pay off or suggests that people's wages and incomes have been stagnant. I think that, I think that America is doing better than our biggest problems. And that relates to the current circumstance we're in. You know, we are in a bad situation right now. We have very elevated rates of unemployment. The U.S. economy is, is, is very fragile, and that is accruing to the detriment of, of lower-wage workers and, and lower-income households. And it will take probably a, a year or two to get back to a healthy unemployment rate, and, and, and maybe even longer than that, to get back to where we were before the pandemic struck. The argument I make in the book is that the last several decades are a story of upward progress, but they're not a story of uninterrupted upward progress. And we have had plenty of periods where workers have faced challenges and and where households have experienced setbacks. The book argues that we've overcome those challenges and that workers have have overcome those setbacks. And you know, I think Henry and EJ point to those problems, point to those periods of setbacks, and are looking at not even half the half the story. They're looking at you know one tenth of the story or something like that. Another one of the sort of the outside voices, outside AEI, is what I mean by that. But one of the voices that's been sort of the most pronounced is that of Warren Cass, formerly at the Manhattan Institute, and he really argues basically that we need government intervention in the form of some sort of comprehensive industrial policy to reverse the decline of, of these middle-skilled jobs that we basically, the old middle that, we, that you were referring to earlier. I know that you don't agree with that. Tell me what's wrong with it. Well, I think that industrial policy is not going to be effective. And that's based on on the evidence from when the United States and other countries have have, have, try, have tried to do this. What is the this there? What does industrial policy actually mean? So industrial policy is is trying to you know treat certain favored industries differently in terms of their tax status and in terms of other government policies in an effort to strengthen those industries. You know that is a temptation that populists and non-populists, I think, succumb to from time to time, but it's not very effective, even on its own terms. So, you know, we could give a very, you know, special tax rate for manufacturing and, and do all these sorts of things. It would not, it would not revive the role that manufacturing played in the United States in, you know, say the 1950s. It just, it just wouldn't achieve that goal. It's also not effective when you when you look at it with respect to, to the entire economy, because you end up, you know, really incurring some pretty significant economic costs for whatever whatever small benefits accrue to that sector. I think it's also just a bad disposition for the United States. The goal should not be to turn back the clock to some kind of imagined golden era that has been that has been left behind. The United States does not need to go backwards. We should be confident 
and optimistic about the future. And if big, powerful global macroeconomic forces are making it such that it is in businesses' overwhelming interest to locate their manufacturing production activities overseas, special reshoring tax credits and special tax rates for manufacturing companies and things of this nature are not going to reverse that. But we also shouldn't want them to. And instead, we should be we should be putting energy into making sure that workers are equipped to take advantage of the opportunities that do exist. And workers should feel a responsibility, a personal responsibility to take advantage of those opportunities as well. And so the message should not be that you know, the game has been rigged and all the good jobs have left and you're a victim and you can't get ahead and you know, hard work won't pay off and you're going to experience stagnation over your career and your kids are going to be worse off than you. Those things aren't true unless we, unless we make them true. And the evidence suggests that those things are not true. Instead, what we should be doing is we should be saying hard work will pay off. You should be confident in that. Look at the opportunities that are available. Figure out what you want to do. Have confidence that you can do it. Have confidence that hard that your hard work will pay off. Have confidence that your economic outcomes will will improve. Have confidence that your kids will do better than you. Have confidence that you can work your way into the middle class and stay there. And public policy will support you in that endeavor. And public policy will help you to achieve those goals. That should be the message, and it should be a forward-looking posture, not an attempt to recreate some imagined economic circumstance that may or may not have existed 70 years ago. So that takes me back to something that you alluded to earlier, which is the question of what kind of, well, I mean, it's two different issues, but there's the question of how we go about supporting workers in taking advantage of the opportunities that are available in the economy and these new middle in these new middle jobs how do we go so talk a little bit about what you think that we ought to be doing from a policy standpoint to better equip workers and i'm particularly interested you say at one point in the book that we should just and i'm quoting here ditch the four-year degree which i think is problematic just because the these new middle jobs that you're talking about and their need for kind of situational intelligence and social adaptability. Actually, a four-year degree can be quite helpful in getting those, those kinds of skills, or at least polishing them up so that they're really, you're really ready to take on those kinds of tasks. So tell me how those two things fit together. This idea of ditching the four-year degree and then focusing on kind of more competency-based system when in fact it looks like the economy is headed in a different direction in terms of the jobs that it's creating, which is favoring these kind of broader skills. Yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't ditch the four-year degree entirely, but I think that this notion that, that a four-year degree is the only path to the middle class and the upper middle class and that it's the right path for everyone, I think, I think those two notions are, are notions that we should, that we should abandon. It's the right path for a lot of people. It's a great investment for people who finish. The evidence is overwhelming that those things are true, but it's not the right path for everybody. And a lot of people start those degrees and, and don't graduate and they end up saddled with 
you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars of student loan debt, but without the earnings premium that that a college degree gets you in order to pay it off. You know, I think community colleges play have a huge role to play in equipping workers to take advantage of of the opportunities that the economy affords. I think community college instruction in and of itself can help with that. I think work based learning models where a community college is a partner with you know local businesses and, and and things of that nature can also be can also be very promising. You know, I would defer to you on 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 the specifics of these things, but I think that's that's a way to to get people more skills and to and, and to help people to meet opportunities that are different than you know sitting in a classroom for four years and 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 taking courses on Shakespeare. Yeah, I guess my concern in all of it is that we've gone as with everything, we we overreact and we overcorrect. Is a four-year degree right for everybody? No, obviously not. But neither is sort of a wholesale repudiation of four-year degrees. That's not going to work either. And what I hear on the, the particularly among conservatives is it seems to lean more toward this wholesale repudiation that it's actually a negative to get a four-year degree. And I don't think that, and I think you agree, that's not really supported by the data. No, I, I, I think the data, the data are overwhelming that a college degree is, is an extremely helpful thing to have and that it's rewarded with consistently lower rates of unemployment and consistently higher wages. Yeah, I think I read somewhere recently that even now in the current circumstances, employment has really recovered for people with four-year degrees. Is that right? It's recovered. Unemployment did not increase nearly as much, and, and unemployment has recovered for, for that group to a higher degree. I mean, the unemployment rate for, for workers who have a college degree is around 5%. Before the pandemic, it was around, it was around 2%. So it's, it's definitely increased, but a 5% unemployment rate is it's full yeah. employment, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in much better shape than, yeah. Than, yeah. Than, than others. So let's wrap up on that question. Where in your crystal ball, where is the economy headed? What needs to be done right now in the middle of this crisis that we're experiencing so that, you know, when we get the vaccine and we can get back to a more normal footing, that we can get the fastest start possible in our recovery? This situation could have created another Great Depression. We've never seen anything like this in, in U.S. history, a situation where large chunks of the economy really had to be shut down without much notice at all. It had to be left idle for several weeks, if, 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 not, if not a few months. This could have led to a massive wave of bankruptcies and business closures. This could have led to unemployment rates that were as high or maybe even higher than what we saw in the Great Depression, you know, a quarter to a third of the workforce unemployed. It could have led to an incredible amount of human misery. And it didn't. And a big part of the reason why it didn't was the massive federal fiscal policy response in late March. We have had as a consequence of that, we still had depression level reductions in economic activity. We had a depression level unemployment rate that was near 20%. We had GDP growth shrink by about a third on an annual basis 
in the second quarter of the year. These are extraordinary things that happened, but we were able to really snap back from that. We, we have, we have had a V shaped recovery in retail and food sales. And that's because the CARES Act that passed in late March allowed two things to happen at the same time in the second quarter, a historic reduction in GDP, along with a historic increase in personal income. This allowed much of the damage from the shutdown to, to be temporary damage. And we have transitioned from a depression-level economic disaster, which is where we were in March and April, to a really bad recession. And right now, we are out of the depression zone. We are, we, are, we are now in a severe recession. And so that alone is enormous progress. What we should expect going forward really depends a lot on, on public policy. I do not expect that the economy will re-enter recession. I do not expect that because I think that the hangover from the CARES Act will continue to support consumer spending. But I also think that as a nation, we have gotten better at living with this virus and people are more comfortable engaging in a more normal life, economic life you know, confident that mask wearing and hand washing and these sorts of things will will protect them. But whether or not we have rates of GDP growth in the fourth quarter that are 6%, 7%, 8%, or we have a rate of GDP growth in the fourth quarter that's 2%, 3%, 4%, that depends on public policy. And we want, I think, to continue to have really rapid GDP growth, we want to continue to have really rapid job gains every month because that will allow for temporary problems to be solved quickly and not to become permanent problems. It will, it will, it will prevent the temporary problems that existed as a consequence of the shutdown from growing roots and really affecting the economy in a systematic way. So I think when I think about what what the economy is going to look like a year from now, the economy a year from now could either be an economy that is experiencing a a mild recession type environment that is that is kind of on the border between a weak economy and a normal economy. Or the economy a year from now could be still be in bad shape. I think it's going to be better than it is now under any circumstance. Uh, the question is just how much better. And, and that, really, that really will depend on what policy does. And the policy you're talking about is support for businesses, support for individuals, support for, you know, pay, basically another stimulus to try to prop up demand. Something like that. Okay. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking some time out to have this conversation. It's been very interesting and helpful. I want to recommend to everybody that they go on Amazon and purchase a copy of Michael's book and read it. It's short. It's very accessible. It's extremely well-written. And I think it really gives us a much clearer picture of what's actually happening in the American economy and to American workers. 
than we're getting necessarily through our political discussion that's going on. So thanks again, Michael. Yes, thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.